You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jeffrey Alford and Naomi Dugid have written six cookbooks, including Hot, Salty, Sour, Sweet, A Culinary Journey Through Southeast Asia, and Mango and Curry Leaves, Culinary Travels Through the Great Subcontinent. Their new book is Beyond the Great Wall, Recipes and Travels in the Other China. I'm speaking with Jeffrey Alford. Thank you for joining me, Jeffrey. Oh, it's great to be here. Jeffrey, you've divided China into the parts we know and the parts we don't know, and the food we know and the food we don't know. Explain that division. <laughs> right, and this book is about the parts we don't know. Um, well, when you think of China, about uh, 130 million people that live in China are not um, ethnically Han Chinese. So this book is about those 130 million. And in the 130 million, um, they live in about three-fifths of the land area of, of China. And there's probably about 60, anywhere from 60 to 70 languages that are spoken. So there's it's a wide, uh, diverse uh, amount of different ethnic groups. <laughs> uh, tell us about the, the landscapes covered in this book. China is a very diverse landscape, kind of like the USA, doesn't it? Right. And it's so interesting if you took China and you slipped it around the, goal, uh, the, the globe, it would come almost in t- perfectly onto the United States. Um, but it's mountains, much more mountainous than the States. And, um, traditionally those mountains, uh, the reason there's so many, so much ethnic diversity in some parts is primarily because of, uh, you know, remoteness from mountain, because of the mountains. Um, now there's a lot of people, a lot of different, uh, ethnicities out there and a lot of different languages, as you mentioned, you're, uh, American? I, I was born in the States and live in Canada. Yeah, both. Um, do you speak the languages, and how many do you speak? <laughs> no. Um, I Both Naomi and I get, get along okay in Mandarin. So Mandarins are the official languages. That, you know, we're often speaking with people in Mandarin. Everybody, we're all speaking it as a second language. Um, and then I speak Thai, so uh, there's certain populations in, this, in southern Yunnan that, that are Thai-speaking. And um, then in Tibet, uh, we were pretty much two years in Tibet from 1988, 85 to 87. And so, we, you know, we get by a little bit. Um, tell us a little bit about just some of the general characteristics of the food in the regions where you mm-hmm. are discussing, and how is it different from the regions that we know? And, and what are the uh-huh, uh-huh. general well, characteristics? Well, I think what, what, the, what, what we know of as Chinese food is, is comes from Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Beijing, uh, the eastern seaboard, if you will. And um, in this, the food that we're uh, that it's that's in this book really actually has nothing in common. Uh, I mean, the, they've they've borrowed a little bits, but here and there, but back and forth. But um, for example, in the whole whole western part, uh, a very big province in China, Xinjiang, those people that live there, the Uyghur, they're they're more Turkic. Their language is a Turkic language. They look like people in Turkey look, and their food is very similar, kebabs and tandoor breads and um, homemade noodles. And then in the southern part, this very another very large province, Yunnan, has this incredible diversity of people because it has all these big mountains and deep valleys. So uh, there's almost 40 languages in that one province. 
And that food, in many ways, is closer to Thai food, uh, Thai, Thai Lao food. And then Tibetan food is uh, really not like anything else, I think, and so interesting in Tibet because uh, especially among nomadic people in Tibet, some of those people live so high that you really can't cook. You can't cook above 17,000 feet. So they've, you know, had to, they have to trade for barley flour, sampa, and, and then they eat meat, but they don't have to cook the meat at that elevation. And then the other major region is Mongol, Mongol, uh, Mongolia, Inner Mongolia. And if anything, uh, there's been more shared back and forth between Mongol, Mongolian cuisine and, and, and Han Chinese cooking. Um, but they have great uh, dumplings in particular. Oh, I'm already hungry. Now, when you were traveling in China, it, it can't have been easy. Could you talk about some of the logistics of what, what did you take with you? Well, the book, um, the book expands a time from 1981 until now. And we ended up writing it sort of in chronological order because when we started work on this book, which, which was about three years ago, you know, we hadn't been in China for, for a few years and we were back and suddenly we were like, whoa, you know, it's just so much social change going on that we wanted to write the book almost as what we would call a chronicle of change. So in those early years, um, in the middle 80s, what we did is we had uh, bicycles and we did, uh, we bicycled, uh, we could be one month uh, self-sufficient on our bicycles with food. So we'd bike from Tibet to Nepal and from western China to Pakistan and then another time in western Tibet. So, um, you know, that was our first contact with nomads. And, and uh, I think we've always, you know, one of the sort of very interesting focal points of the book is, is nomadic people because there are lo still a lot of nomadic people. In, in China today, and uh, they have such an interesting relationship to food. So, and then a lot of buses and jeeps and trucks. <laughs> um, travel is always hard. Uh, nowadays, there's more planes, but still, a lot of this book is in remote regions. So, you know, it's a three-day bus trip or it's a five-day bus trip, something like that. Could you talk about the kind of customs and ethics and culture you had to? traverse a lot of uh, dri different cultures and y again you're American so mm -hmm. it seems must have been kind of a, a lot of shock for you um, you know we're, we're very I guess uh, comfortable um, when we're with people who are sort of that grounded in where they live you know like one thing like the these all these cultures they they're completely different <laughs> from each other but they're all sort of in many ways uh, almost uh, to some extent some pre-industrial and so the food is what grows there <laughs> you know it's a very direct um, you know relationship with their food so and we're always um, we love being in those places because it sort of helps us reflect on our own life and there's just something that's always uh, we've done a lot of our, our books are around people, you know, in some sense or another, pre-industrial people. Um, so we're, we're happy when we get in that situation, usually. That, that's really fascinating. Uh, when you, how, were these people, I mean, they're pre-industrial, you're post-industrial, we're close yes. to it at this point. Uh, how did you get them to tell you stuff, and, and, and uh, how did, were they comfortable, like, revealing their recipe secrets? Well, I think, like we, there's, for us, there's no such thing as a, a acquiring a recipe, really, because mm -hmm. we're we're what we 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 do more with our camera than we do with a notebook, 
So we're just, uh, when we, and so everything has to be, we've had to have seen it and seen it making. So we're talking a lot of things that are either made on the street or they're so common that everybody knows how to do this. Like there's no recipe for Zampa. It's just roasted barley flour that's, you know, ground. ground. And, um, and then it's just transmission. Uh, so uh, we, the noodle chapter, for example, we think is sort of the most important chapter in the book. And the noodle chapter could have been the whole book, really, because there's so many noodle traditions. And um, they're kind of, you know, a noodle is flour, salt, and water, you know, sometimes an egg. So it's all about technique. And um, so many of the recipes are just learning, watching it with our cameras and e eating it, and then coming home and learning to do it. That's fascinating. Now, cameras. You started this book in 1981, and you, we finished it up last year. <laughs> yeah. Cameras have gone through a lot of changes in those years. Mm -hmm, not us. <laughs> <laughs> not yours. Okay, well, tell me. I'm, I'm interested. I'm a gearhead. What do you yeah, use? We, shoot, we, we still shoot slide film. We shoot Barovia film, and um, we just have F90s. Too. Uh, you know, if, if I'm by myself, I'll have, I'll have two camera bodies, and a 180 and a 20 and a... 35 and a 60. So that's my gear. And we've thought, you know, the, the attractiveness of, of, of um, digital, but uh, not having to, because we always have to argue our films through airports and, and get, it, uh, get it there and get it home. And, you know, we're always having some problems with film. But um, I think we're, we're, we're going to stay with it because the, when they do the books, um, there's color separations that go back and forth and back and forth. And with digital, there's not such thing as an original. So they're always trying to bring the color separation back to match the original. So that's where we're <laughs> stuck. Or we're happy being there. It's what we know how to do. Well, the pictures are absolutely gorgeous. It's, it's a really beautiful book. It's beautifully art directed and, and, and printed. Could you talk? Uh, how much input do you have into that process? I mean, the book is very—it's like kind of a movement, you know, a work of art. Mm -hmm. We're really lucky because our publisher is uh, just absolutely wonderful, and they do treat it as an art book. You know, it, it, it's always referred to as the art. And uh, we were in New York various times um, in the shaping of this. It, it was done in house, and we just think it was spectacularly done from an art point of view, art direction point of view. And um, the person who did the color separation, she's a Tibetan Buddhist, and she just, you know, the, you know, I, I thought this is not a job I could ever do because I don't see that well. But she's, you know, she'll get the color separation back and she'll say, you know, the little shift in magenta here, we need to get it back to, you know, and I just, you know, I don't even see it. But um, uh, it's, and then the art director, uh, we've always had really wonderful art directors, but, um, the, we really loved her, uh, and she, she she was you know, sometimes art directors like really like a lot of white space, and I understand their point of view. But but we've always wanted to have more and more and more information in there, you know, because we think of visuals as really loaded with information, and captions, and you know. And she said, "Fine, just just give it to me." And so we, I think it's our favorite book we've ever done from the point of view of how much you know information actually got in the book visual information. Uh, and, and speaking of information, the, the writing is really beautiful. Oh, you're nice. <laughs> well, uh, tell us uh, about writing this book uh, over a long period of time, editing the prose, creating the prose. We So Nami and I, we both do everything. So we're 50-50 on everything. Um, and But to some extent, I handle the prose more. And, and, and the f last of the recipes, she handles the recipes more. 
Um, so we're two people writing, and um, so you know, and I think uh, this time for the first time we put an N and a J because people have given us a hard time in previous books that they can't tell who's writing, and. Um, Oh gosh, it's just a, we we have our editor is Ann Bramson, and we've had her same editor. She's our best friend for you know uh, as long as we've been doing books, and she's a wonderful editor. When we get she'll she gets the manuscript, and then works at the manuscript, and sends us back about five pages single spaced, and it's not like uh, you know this word choice here or something. It's sort of conceptual five pages of conceptual things, and it's it's always better after after um, we have uh, had that back and forth. So she doesn't line edit, which we're, we're really thankful for. And, um, you know, and she'll say, we used to try and, you know, write 500-word stories or something, and she said 800, 200, whatever. You know, she'll work it in, and we'll, our director will work it in. So it's, we're, we're really lucky. We're really working in a very free editorial environment. And, and again, back to the information, there's a lot of information in this book, a lot of research, and how do you kind of balance the um, uh, information in terms of what you research, what you experience, how, what informs what? Uh, I think we always, uh, the photography term is F8 and be there, right? That basically, medium depth of field and be present, and that's where we are on information. Like long ago when we first started, we thought, oh, we can include some politics of food stuff, and you know, but then when we got down to it, we thought that's secondary information for us. We're, we're writing about what some way you read somebody else. And so we're always happiest when we say, I was in this town and I ate this, and so-and-so told me that they eat a kilo of bread a day. You know, okay, we don't know that, but that's what they told us, and that's where we're comfortable at. Um. Uh, this is also kind of a piece of travel writing, too. Uh, it, it's very much a, a travel book, and it's an interesting view uh, of China as a place to go. And I wonder if you'd care to talk about cook, writing a cookbook as a, as a piece of travel writing to get to know a country. Um, I'm always uncomfortable with the travel side of things because, I, I mean— uh, it's sort of been my whole adult life is travel, so uh, and I don't really know what that is. Um, but uh, we certainly we worked for three years before this book on uh, worked in South Asia on the Indian subcontinent, and we really wanted to write. I really wanted to write about my favorite one dollar hotels, you know, and the t tea shop and the guy that flips open his coat in the railway station, and just all these wonderful humorous life giving things that happen uh, in, in the subcontinent. But on this book in China, we thought it was more important to actually write um, uh, about what we observe happening in China, which is, which is the most unbelievable social change of, that we think we'll ever see in our lifetime. Uh, because this period from 1980 to, 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 to the present day, it's just unbelievable, the change. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, well, there's the, um, you know, the economic uh, growth in certain regions, and then what's uh, resulting from the economic growth. Because um, to some extent, we, we wanted the book to, um, to sort of focus on, I mean, on, on the, some of these smaller cu cultures are perhaps in a position where they could be sort of become not, cult uh, not a culture, just sort of be steamrolled by um, this, you know, billion-plus people who now have the potential to, to migrate and who have the money to migrate. 
And so, for example, Lhasa, used, you know, in 1985, Lhasa is a Tibetan town. It's the capital, you know, and now there's a Tibetan sector of town, and it really is a Chinese town. Um, and this is just one example. The railroad to, to Lhasa just went in this year, so you can imagine the, what's going to happen uh, there. And in some of the other places, like, um, you know, some of these cultures are very small and, and, and uh, you know, um, it's, so it gets a little bit political for us because of what's happening right now with the, with the, um, with the Olympics coming. And uh, you think, you know, China's had a very good policy uh, uh, relative to the United States, relative to Russia, relative to Australia and Canada in terms of dealing with people who aren't of the dominant population. But in the last 10 years, they have not a good policy. You know, they're going, going the wrong way. So, and, and we thought, we're not, we're not going to do this book without making, the, you know, we do have the point of view that um, they need to, you know, give more autonomy to the people within, within the borders. Um, one of the things that, that, and the other thing you're writing about too, are recipes. And, and, and could you talk about writing recipes? I mean, there are recipes yeah. in this book and they're, mm. they're, they are absolutely delicious. And it's funny, I think, well, this book is easier to cook from than any book will ever, because that's uh, what I like about it. <laughs> <laughs> if, you know, again, you take that, that China and the United States, you know, you flip it around the globe. So, you know, there's winter, there's, you know, people eat cabbages and carrots and cauliflowers, you know. Um, about the only thing that we worked with in the book food-wise that we hadn't really been accustomed to was goat. And there's, you know, a lot of goat in those areas where we were. So we started to f look for goat. And we live in Toronto. And, and then we realized, well, it was all around, actually. We just hadn't ever really tuned in and but that's about the only thing that was um you know a little bit unusual it's very easy cooking uh could you talk a little bit about the, the book setup is really nice the way the way the book is actually um laid out in terms of recipes and then we get the um the looks at the land and the and the various peoples could you talk about that design how you created mm -hmm. that this came that about uh, back and forth again with the art director and and um we just think that it was we, what we do in each chapter. We write what we call to, to ourselves a profile of a people. For example, the Dong who live in Guizhou Province, or the Hani that live in Yunnan Province, or you know, and and tell you and like they, we only get to twelve or fourteen, but at least it gives you sort of an in-depth look at what one group is like. And then there's a little map to show you where they live in relative, relative to everyone else. Uh, and then we try and work in photographs around that profile so that you get a sense of you know what those people look like, um, and you know it it was a it was a it was a <laughs> big fat manuscript to turn in, and then uh, once we turned it in, our editor Ann she wanted more, <laughs> so it just like finding a place for everything. There was two great maps at the beginning, uh, one is um, uh, a map showing where all these people, different people live. And another is, is um, a map of languages, which uh, the language thing is very complicated, <laughs> and, uh, but absolutely essential to, to, in understanding the region. Now, you, once we get kind of past the, the general parts of the book, you divide the book up into different parts, you know, the different kinds of foods. And um, you start with condiments. I have to ask, what could you tell me what is chutney 
how do we define <laughs> chutney? Because I've been eating it uh -huh. all my life. Yes. Yeah, chutney's a, I don't know the d origin of the word. Um, and I think it's a, a weak word to use. And uh, the, to, to me, salsa is a better word to describe a lot of these things. Because a chutney, there, in India, there'd be fresh chutney and, a, and, a, and preserved chutney. And they're quite different things, in, I think. You know, fresh chutney is like what we think of, especially here in California, it's salsa. Um, so, uh, but salsa is a word more commonly used in, in the western part of the United States than it is in the eastern part. So, you know, this is back and forth, this language. Like, um, we, we always have a mixed feelings about putting English names on, on, on recipes, but I, we just haven't come up with any other way to do it. Like, for example, there's a one called earlobe noodles <laughs> because you have this big dough and it's like pulling off the bottom of your earlobe and tossing it in the boiling water you know and, and we're sure they're not called earlobe noodles in Uyghur you know but that's what we came up with um uh, condiments y you say are are really uh common and could you talk about that? That's something that we don't really have a, a right. part of our meals. Is right. It? I think uh, for for almost everything that we've ever written cookbook-wise, things are either centered around a staple food, particularly rice, because we primarily working in Asia, and um, it, there's it's it's a different type of eating. It's a, eating a large amount of carbohydrate. That's where your calories are coming from. And then there's things to send that rice in sort of Chinese terms, you know, to pop, make it pop. And condiments are very good for that, like a little goes a long way. For example, in India, when you watch Westerners come and, you know, there's this 250 grams of rice in front of them. And then, and then all the other curries and all, they're all free sort of in, in South India. But, and foreigners think, oh, oh all, the, all the, you know, um, nutritious things, all the vitamins are in there, you know. And so they'll fill up really fast <laughs> on the curry. <laughs> but actually the curry is meant to be eaten in small amounts, giving flavor to the, to the meal, which is the carb. Uh, that's fascinating. Now, uh, when you're trying to create these salsas here, um, could you talk about where we're going to find some of these ingredients Again, these are easy. These are easy. Like, um, you know, you can just, just uh, th thinking of Mexican cooking, you know, and of, 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 a, um, a, of a tomato and, and onion and garlic and coriander leaf or something. And, and, and even with those few ingredients, you could come up with several different condiments, depending on if you roast your tomato beforehand or if you, you know. And um, I think Naomi has one in the book where uh, basically um, they just squeezed uh, f little fresh tomatoes with their hands and then added um, uh, lemon juice, lime juice, and roasted sesame oil, a combination that we'd never even thought of. You know, it's as simple as that, salt. But, you know, squeeze them with your hands and then um, add the three other ingredients. Wow, that's just, <laughs> yeah. that's so great. Uh, I, I loved warm beef salad. To die for, <laughs> and really so bizarre too. Yeah, at the same yeah, time, yeah, it is bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it's good though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's what. Uh, that's why the book is at home because I prepared <laughs> it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of. Uh, I not you're making these things. It's not the cleanest thing. In the world, no, 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 no. Yeah. But tell us about where some of these kind of unusual dishes. Are. Is this the places where again you can't cook? Uh, well, no. I mean that actually in, is in for, that's like 
people living way high, high elevation. That's cooked, and, and most of the things in the book, are, like uh, where there are certain places, certain of these regions where we're going to have more recipes come just because they have more res more sort of more food in 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 the region. Like uh, Yunnan province, you know, there's bananas and pineapples growing there. It's very tropical, you know, food rich. Another uh, way out in the west in those desert oases, oases, um, a lot grows in those oases. And so the 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 the, the, the local cuisine is is you know, uh, pretty serious cuisine. So we it's easier for us to find things that are going to translate and to work in the cookbook from a couple of the regions as opposed to some of the others. Now, you talked about noodles could have uh, conquered the whole book. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your adventures in noodle making. Uh, well, they still continue. <laughs> um, because I think the first book we ever wrote was something that was a book on flatbreads. <clears throat> and suddenly when we're working with the noodles, we're right back in that world of flatbreads because it's just really simple flour, salt, and water most of the time. And then it's all about technique. Um, but and, what do you but, mean by technique? I'm well, not sure. Uh, there were several that we never learned because we could never master the technique. Uh, but, um, and, you know, a lot of people here, maybe like my grandmother, she, um, she made chicken and noodles. And she would make this big dough, roll it out very thin and flour it, and then roll it up like a jelly roll, and then cut it in very fine strips and then let them dry. And then she'd cook a chicken in a, in a broth to make a broth, and take the chicken out and then toss in these noodles. So it's sort of like, you know, hand handmade pasta. But the wonderfulness of it is it's is the fact that it is handmade. And not every like um, we have three kids at home and um, five of us in the kitchen and we start if if we have these ones, this Kazakh noodle that we make the dough and then we let it sit in pieces and then we get everybody pulling their we call them pulled noodles, where you t take them between two fingers on one hand and two fingers on the other and just keep stretching, stretching until they're, you know, sort of several feet long. And um, so you have five different people doing this, and you're going to have five different people's skill base or, or, you know, so all the noodles are going to be different. And I think that's part of the, the charm and deliciousness of the, of the homemade noodles. Oh, this sounds like uh, making the food both at home here and, and Presumably, in the, we're out there in, in China, it is a family affair, a community affair. Well, and you know, you think uh, some of these, be some of the best dishes that we learned were actually from people who are, you know, in one way or another, nomadic people living. A lot of people living in yurts, and um, you think they don't have sophisticated kitchen, you know. So, uh, you know, and people, people living, you know, very clo close together in the yurts. But the the yurts are. Um, we were in yurts in Mongolia, yurts in, in um, you know, the Kazakh, yurts in Kyrgyz and Tajik peoples. And um, they're wonderful. They're really very nice places to be, uh, real homey, um, lots of blankets around the edge where, you know, where people sleep and then there's a stove or a tandoor oven in the middle. They're, they're pretty nice places. Well, well, tell us about some of these nomadic dishes. What were your favorite nomadic dishes <laughs> that, that you make now at home? Yeah, one, um, I learned I was several days with some Kazakh people, and they would sort of take me from one yurt to another. So I saw a lot of Kazakh cooking in particular. And the one that we do is actually this pulled noodle and the, and the goat, uh, goat shank. And, uh, you know, just people were chatting, and, and uh, they had a goat shank boiling. And then... Uh, 
when it, they pulled it out, and by that time, ha, you know, then stretched these noodles, pulled them, and then poured them back into the water, cooked them, and then served them on a big platter. And then she could, took a white onion and ch made it in small slices and put the white onion over the top of the noodles and then put the shank back on the table. So we had the broth in little bowls. And then we ate, you know, using your right hand. Everyone ate communally from the big platter of noodles. And, and I, you know, I've eaten a lot of things communally, uh, like pulaos in Afghanistan or um, couscous in Morocco. Or, but I'd never eaten um, noodles communally. And, and then just this, again, just this simplicity of, of these homemade noodles and white onion and, and, and the goat shank um, was one of my highlights. Um, you must have met a lot of people there. And could you tell us about some of your your favorite characters that that you met? And you you describe some of these people in your book. Uh, I'm t thinking of a, a one of your drivers in particular. Oh, that was Naomi's driver. <laughs> We've had a lot of drivers. <laughs> yes, the, the, I can't because I wasn't there for them. Uh, we, we've met. You know, it was, it's ironic in the book though because uh, we ha we we many times uh, tell a story, but we don't actually tell the show the picture of the person. Because um, it's because of delicate politics, and we're talking about people who are not the dominant population, and like for example, some of these Kazakh guys, and they they would clearly like to have their own country, you know. And in China today, that you know, you could be arrested for for saying that, um, and it, you know, so so we we had to be very careful about uh, naming people that we spent much time with. Um, because we, we were very aware that there can be uh, bad repercussions for them. Uh, curiously, the book was, um, uh, our artisan who publishes book or is most often printing in China right now. And uh, this book couldn't be printed in China because um, it mentions the Dalai Lama. And th so they, they can't print it. Well, that's fascinating. I've been speaking with Jeffrey Alford. His new book is Beyond the Great Wall, Recipes of, and Travels in Other China. He wrote it with Naomi Dugood. Thank you for joining me, Jeffrey. Oh, it was great. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.